All right, go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 12, looking at verses 13 through 17. That is Mark 12, 13 through 17. Uh, for those of you who are visiting us, uh, we're continuing our study of Mark's Gospel, and what we do here generally uh, as a church is we walk verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Um, and our subject this morning is rendering to God the things that are God's. Now, I, I preached this text last week, Mark 12, 13 through 17, um, and this morning we're, we're obviously taking a second look at this text. Um, so let me give a little bit of a recap. Uh, last week I focused mainly on rendering to Caesar the things that belong to him. We considered how the government has a right to tax its citizens, even if we don't like it, um, and we as Christians are obligated to pay. Uh, and then we moved from Mark 12 to Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2 to consider further what we owe to our government. And we saw that we owe taxes, respect, obedience, our prayers, our prayers to God on their behalf, and our prophetic voice. Um, we, we considered how under God we truly do owe many things to Caesar and that our default posture toward the government should be one of obedience. But we also... Uh, thought through the limits of the authority of the civil government. Um, you, you can come in. You sit wherever you want. Now, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. We're glad you're here. Uh, but we also thought through the limits of the authority of the civil government, and we were reminded that our allegiance is first and foremost to God, right? And when allegiance to God, as Pastor Stephen just mentioned in his prayer, when allegiance to God conflicts with allegiance to the state, we must obey God rather than men. And this is really one of the ways that we render to God the things that are God's, right? Our, our obedience and allegiance to the state is not limitless. It does have boundaries that are set and defined by God. And when we disobey the state, and sometimes we have to, but when we disobey the state, we do so because through prayer and biblical study, we have come to believe that God commands it, right? So that was last week. We focused on render to Caesar, uh, but there's more to be said than, than just that on this text. So I, I decided that we should spend some time um, considering particularly verses 16 and 17. Uh, we're going to be meditating on the second half of Jesus' statement, where he says, render to God the things that are God's. So this sermon's going to be really simple this morning. Um, it's not going to be difficult. It may be hard to practice because we're sinful, but it's going to be very simple uh, very basic level Christianity. Um, I'm not going to teach hardly any of you anything that you don't already know, uh, but a quick reminder, we do not assemble each Lord's Day in order to learn something new each week. I used to think that that's why we came to church. That's not true. We gather each Lord's Day in order to hear of the majesty of God and, and the great grace that he has shown us in our Lord Jesus Christ, and also to be reminded of our obligations and duties toward him for who he is and what he has done. We gather each Lord's Day to worship God because he is worthy. We gather each Lord's Day to be instructed in how we are to love and live for him. And we gather to hear the why of it all. Right? That's, that's probably my favorite part. We, we gather to hear the why, why we are obligated to do so, why we should want to do so, why he is so worthy of all of our affection and devotion. And the why is always connected to who he is and what he has done to us, in us, and for us. So th this morning, I simply want to give 
three reasons for our rendering ourselves to God. And then I want us to consider what it is that we owe God, right? What we're to give back to him. So here's my outline for this morning. Um, One, we are to render ourselves to God because we belong to him by rights of creation. Two, we are to render ourselves to God because we, rather, because we were created to do so. Third, we are to render ourselves to God because we belong to him by right of redemption. And then fourth, we're going to consider what does it mean to render ourselves to God? May God bless us and help us to see the answers to these things as he has revealed them in the scriptures. Now, with all that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 12. Verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. And we thank you that you've given us your word. Uh, You have revealed divine truth in your word that we would have never learned from nature. Without the word, we are blind, poor, pitiable, and miserable creatures. And that's because apart from your word, no one would know you savingly in Jesus Christ. But you've given us the word, and we praise you for it. And our desire, God, is to understand, believe, love, and live out what you've spoken to us in Scripture. So we humbly ask that by your spirit, you would have mercy on us and bless us. That you would open the word to us by the mighty work of your spirit. Open our minds to understand, our hearts to receive, and our wills to obey. Glorify yourself in us this morning as you sanctify us by your truth. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Let me begin by summarizing this text very briefly before we focus on the last verse. Um, our, our te- and I mean very briefly. Uh, our, our text tells us that some of the Pharisees and Herodians were sent to Jesus in order to trap him in his talk. That is, they came to Jesus in order to ask him a question that they believed, no matter how he answered, would get him in trouble with the local Roman governor Pilate, or get him in trouble with the people. They're trying to catch Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Right? Either way, they believed that their question would be so devastating to Jesus' reputation that whether at the hands of Pilate or the people, Jesus would end up dead because of his answer. And their question had to do with paying taxes to Caesar. Now, historical context here, this is the poll tax. It was a tax that every person living in the Roman Empire had to pay. Right? And, and it was a tax not for goods or services or anything like that, but it was simply for the pleasure of living in the empire. And, and most Jews viewed this tax as blasphemous. 
right? Caesar was, in their minds, by, by taxing you simply for living in his empire, in their minds, Caesar was basically claiming ownership over you. That Caesar was basically claiming ownership over the people of Israel. And the Jews hated that idea, right? The common sentiment was, we're owned by God, right? We are God's special possession. We're owned by God. We're not owned by Caesar. And, and so the average Jew believed that the tax should not be paid, right? That it was illegitimate and even sacrilegious. So the Pharisees and Herodians believed that they had Jesus trapped with this question, right? Let me explain why. One, if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, what are they going to do? They're going to go straight to Pilate. They're going to go straight to the Roman governor and accuse Jesus of sedition and inciting rebellion against the state, and the Romans didn't mess with that. The Romans would have had him killed. So if he says, don't pay the tax, Pilate will kill him. But if, if, but if Jesus said, yes, pay the tax, then the common people would hate Jesus and not defend him and then the Sanhedrin would be able to arrest him without a problem. You'll remember, I think it's been mentioned twice, that they wanted to arrest him but feared the people. right? So if the people hate him, then they can arrest him and do what they want. So, so they really thought that they had Jesus pinned in a corner with this question. In, in their minds, no matter how he answered, it spells trouble for him. But our Lord is wise. And so we read in verses 15 through 17, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus told them to bring him one of the Roman coins, a denarius. It's the particular coin, the tribute penny, as it became known. Bring him one of the coins that they had to pay their tax with. And then holding the coin for them to see, he asked, whose likeness, whose image, and whose name is on this coin, the inscription, the name and title? Whose likeness, whose image, whose name is on this coin? And clearly it was Caesar's. It was his name and his image on the coin. And so our Lord tells them, then give it back to him. Give it back to Caesar. He says, and this word's important, I mentioned it last week, he says, render to Caesar, which is a different Greek word than give. He says, render it to him. That is, pay him his due. Give him what you owe him. So he tells them that, that they owe Caesar the tax. The money has Caesar's image and name on it, and therefore it belongs to him and should be given back to him when he commands it. And in doing this, Jesus shows that it is legitimate for God's people to obey the civil government, even if the government is pagan, even if the government is corrupt. But Jesus isn't finished, is he? He then, with great wisdom and beauty, as the great prophet of God, right? he's more than a prophet, he is God in the flesh, but he's not less than a prophet. He's our great prophet, priest, and king. And as the great prophet of God, Jesus tells them something else. He says, and render to God the things that are God's. Jesus uses a bit of a play on words here. Right? The, the coin had Caesar's image and name on it and therefore belonged to Caesar and was to be given to him. But mankind has God's image. We all were made in the image of God as Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us. And if we have God's image and God's name on us, then what? Then we belong to him. 
just like the coin belonged to Caesar. God's name and image is on us, and so we are to give ourselves wholly to him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is telling us here, you are to give God his due. Do you view yourself as a debtor? The words Jesus used here tells us we are to pay God what we owe him. And Jesus tells us in this text that what God is due, what is owed to him by we who have been made in his image is nothing less than our whole person. Everything that we are belongs to God. Everything that we have belongs to God and we are to gladly render ourselves wholly unto him. That's the big point of the answer of our Lord. Give your silver to Caesar when he demands it, but give yourself to God. Why? Because just as Caesar rightly owns his coins, God owns you. And just as you are obligated to give Caesar his due, you are even more obligated to give God his due. And what does God do? You. All that you are. He's due all of you. That's the teaching of our text here. Now let's turn our attention to the why. The why. I know I run the risk of being redundant. If you thought through this text, I've already, I've already given you at least part of the why. I know I run the risk of being redundant. I'm basically going to restate and flesh out what I've already said. But it's worthy of our meditation. And I say that because if we're going to obey Jesus here, Right? If, if we're truly going to render to God the things that belong to God, then we must know why. We must know why. So first we see quite clearly that we are to give ourselves to God because we belong to him by right of creation. Jesus' words in verse 17 point us back to the creation account where we read this, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man, let us make man, in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were made in God's image. At the risk of sounding too simple, I, I, I feel almost silly uh, fleshing this out. At the risk of sounding too simple, let me stress this. God's image is on us because he made us. Because he made us. He, he stamped you, so to speak. You bear his mark. You bear his image. Why? Because you received it when you were created. He made you. And he gave you his image. Again, at the minimum, this reminds us that we are creatures. Do you think of yourself as a creature? Because you are. We are God's creations. His image is on us simply because he made us this way. So we are what we are and owe to God what we owe to God because he made us. So what I, what I first want to do is just consider the raw fact that God created us. And, and as creator, God has rights over us, right? He, he has sovereign rights over us. He owns us. We do not own ourselves. Why? Because we didn't create ourselves. If you would have created yourselves, you would own you. But nothing is self-created. And we know this by 
basic reason, right, that, that, that he has rights and owns us because he made us. We know this by the light of nature. What do I mean? Well, is it not just common sense that whatever you make, you own? <laughs> right? Like, it's yours. Why? Because you made it. It's yours. It's for this reason that God's even let the heathens understand copyright laws and patents and all the rest, right? It is natural law that whatever is made is owned by the maker. So then, how much more is this true for the one who made all things? How much more? Imagine this. This, this, just meditating on this this week meant something to me. How much more is this true for the one who didn't simply put things together that already existed, right? That's what we do when we make stuff, right? We take uh, materials that already existed, and then we piece them together to make something, and then that thing we made is ours. God made matter. There was nothing for him to piece together. He made the matter itself. Surely he owns it. Surely he owns everything. God owns it all because he made it all, and that means that he owns you and he owns me by rights as the creator. And this is affirmed explicitly in Scripture. Right, Psalm chapter 24, verses 1 and 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The psalmist tells us that the whole earth belongs to the Lord, belongs to God. But, but not just the physical matter of earth as a planet, but all that's in it, all that dwells therein belongs to him. And why is that? Well, the text actually gives us a reason. For, that's explanatory, for he has founded it and established it. He owns it because he made it. And that includes man who lives in God's world. We are indebted to him and obligated to him in all things that he's pleased to command. We see a very similar thing in Job chapter 41 verse 11. This one might be my favorite on this subject. In that text, God is speaking to Job, and God says this. The Apostle Paul refers back to this in Romans 11. He says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. That's the word of the Lord. Who's ever given me anything that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God tells Job, I don't owe anyone anything. God doesn't owe. No one has ever given anything to God to make him their debtor. But God does go but God goes on to say that everything under the heavens is his. That is everything is his. Again, he doesn't owe anyone anything because everything that exists belongs to him. And I think that there might be something implied here for our consideration. God doesn't owe anyone, but since he owns it all, the entire creation must owe him. Let me put it a different way. No one has ever laid an obligation on God. Who's ever given me anything that I should repay them? No one's ever laid an obligation on him. Rather, everything has an obligation to him who owns them. I read this in a commentary on, on this verse. The commentator said, he is not accountable to us. He is not accountable to us. Rather, we are accountable to him because we are his creatures. Another text uh, that is indirectly related, but I think it's worth mentioning, is James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, 
with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I think this is indirectly related. Um, Here's what I mean. Everything that you have, whether it be tangible or intangible, has been given to you by God. It all belongs to him. Whatever you have has been given to you as a gift. Whatever you have has been given as a gift. Certainly you owe him everything that you are and everything you have for this reason alone. Consider for a moment, can, can a sinner earn anything from the Holy One? No. So surely then everything that you have has been gifted to you. It's been granted to you. The air that you're breathing, it's his. Your heart that's beating, it's his. The clothing on your back, it's his. The children who sit on your lap, they're his. The bed that you woke up in, it's his. The eyes that you're looking at me through, they're his. The food in your gut, it's his. All of it belongs to him. Do you have anything? The answer is yes. You do have something. Do you have anything? Then know that it is first God's and has been given to you as a gift by his grace. So then, do you not think that it stands to reason that you owe the one who gave everything to you? Does it not naturally follow that the one who gave you everything is owed whatever he is pleased to demand of you? I mean, surely, surely we are not so foolish as to think that we owe him nothing. Surely we're not that dumb. Perish the thought. We are debtors to the God who made us the God who made the world and everything in it, the God who has given us everything that we have. We're indebted to him. We owe him our very selves by virtue of the fact that, as Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Brothers and sisters, before I go any further, let me say this. This is enough. This is enough. And this thought always blows my mind. What do I mean this is enough? Here's what I'm saying. We could, I could end the sermon here, and that would be enough, wouldn't it? We could stop here, and that would be enough. I know some of you are thinking, I wish that this was enough, and you would stop. <laughs> Guess again, that's not happening. Um, but you get the, I hope you see the point that I'm making. This right here, that God is creator, is abundantly sufficient grounds for our humbling ourselves before him and giving him whatever he commands. And apparently this was enough many times for the Old Testament saints on many occasions. And I say that because the Old Testament scriptures constantly praise God and reverence him as the creator, owner, and king of the world especially in the Psalms. I've not done a study to see whether or not God is redeeming them from Egypt or God as creator is mentioned more often, but I can tell you this, God as creator is mentioned a whole bunch in the praises of Israel. God being God is enough to say that all creatures owe him their praise. We must start here. Hear me, our case does not end here, but it has to start here. Right? Bear with me for what I'm getting ready to say, because some of you, I don't want to be misunderstood. Enough of only focusing on what God has done for us in redemption. Don't lose that. Don't, <laughs> we're going to get to that later. Don't lose that. But listen, even if God never saved us, 
we would still be obligated to offer ourselves to him simply because of who he is as our maker. If you think I'm stretching the text, read Romans 1. What is Paul's universal charge against mankind? They don't worship God. They worship the creature rather than the creator. We, even apart from redemption, owe this to God. So often people only think that they owe worship and praise and their lives to God because he's done something for them. That's what, that's what people stop a lot of the time. He did this for me, and so I owe myself to him. And listen, that's true. That's one of the reasons we're going to get to in a minute. But that is far too transactional. That doesn't get to the root and heart of our obligation to God. We don't owe God ourselves simply because he has done something for us. The fact that God has done something for us being a grounds for our giving ourselves to him is in addition to the fact that we owe him because he's God. This is enough. Brothers and sisters, we have to recover this. This reason is all over the Bible, but I don't think that we give enough credit to it. Why is it that it seems strange to some of us? Did you feel this a little bit as we sang Psalm 8? I'm singing about the fact that God made the birds and the fish. Right? Like anyone, like I, I, I bet I'm not the only one that whenever we sing those psalms, you're like, this is strange. I've never sang the word fish before. <laughs> Wasn't strange for the Jews, was it? That was their songbook. I'm praising God simply because God is creator and I recognize what I owe him because of who he is and what he has done in making all things. I'm obligated to him. We start there. And so because he owns us, we are obligated to him. A second reason that we are to render ourselves to God is that we have been made in the image of God. You're saying, didn't you just say that? Kind of, not really. Now, and, and I don't want to focus on the fact that God created us, but why he created us and with what abilities and faculties he created us. That's what I want to focus on now. We have been made in the image of God. But what does that mean? Well, uh, to be honest, there's a lot to say and even some debate among theologians about certain nuances of the doctrine of being created in God's image. But at the minimum... We should understand that this does not mean that we physically look like God. This is what the Mormons believe, by the way. You're made in God's image, and he is a man. Yeah, the Mormons actually believe that God's just an exalted man. Anyway, I'll get off the Mormon stuff, or I'll, I'll keep going. We, this does not mean that we physically look like God. As our confession says, along with the scriptures, God is without body, parts, or passions, and is a most pure spirit. Right? So being made in the image of God must mean then that we, are, we were made to reflect him, again, to image him, right? to display something about him like a mirror that is in some non-tangible, non-physical way. So in some non-physical way, we were made to reflect God. Again, there, there are certain things and abilities about us that reflect God. There are things that make human beings different. Right? Things that we have that the rest of the created order does not. Again, there are certain things about us that mirror God. And they're unique to us as humans. These are qualities that are unique to image bearers. But what are some of these things? Well, some of them would include, and this is not an exhaustive list, but some of them would include, uh, first, the fact that God has given us souls. Right? Eternal souls, spirit, right? that will never die. Even if the body dies, the spirit lives. 
In, in this regard, God has actually made us similar to himself. It's not a one-for-one. One, it's similarities. What am I getting at? God doesn't die. And he is a most pure spirit. So in a similar way, he has granted us spirits that will never die. Spirits that even when the body is dead will go and dwell on a different plane, ideally with God, even after we die. And that's not to mention, I'm not denying the bodily resurrection of the dead. I'm talking about the intermediate state. So we have, we have souls. We have spirits. And that reflects God. We were created to live. Second, God has given us minds. He has made us rational creatures. Some of us more rational than others, but we don't need to get into that right now. Right? We, we have all been given the ability to think and reason on a very high level. Right? And, and this mirrors God in that he is reason. Some theologians have called him the great mind. Right? He thinks, to speak humanly of him, he thinks. And we are thus able to know him. Right? We are able to know and understand things about God that he is pleased to reveal to us because he has made us reasonable creatures. Third, God has given us the ability to have intimate relationships. Right? We are relational beings. We communicate. We form families. We form communities. We form nations. And this reflects the fact that God in himself is relational. What am I getting at? Well, within God, there is a trinity of persons. God communes and fellowships within himself. And since we have this relational ability given to us by God, God has made us by grace able to have fellowship with himself. A fourth thing, God has given us moral responsibility. He has made us moral creatures who are able to distinguish right from wrong. And this mirrors God, who is the very definition of holiness and goodness. The God who hates evil and loves righteousness. God who by his very existence distinguishes good from evil. And since we have been made in his image with this ability to know right from wrong, we then have a moral obligation to pursue the right. To pursue righteousness as defined by God. Or to put it this way, we have the moral obligation to do what he commands. And this is tied very closely to the fifth and last thing I have. We have wills. Right? We have the ability to make choices. And they are real choices. Right? We're not hyper-Calvinists. They are real choices. This reflects God's ability to choose to order things however he wills. And since we have this ability to choose, we are to choose as our maker would have us to choose. We are to willfully pursue those things that he would call us to pursue. We are the only creatures that have these faculties and abilities. We're the only ones. And since that is the case, since we are the only creatures made in the image of God, we're unique. We are special to him. As we read and sang in Psalm 8, we are the crowning of God's creation. We are the highest on earth. We are just below the angels. Right? We stand out. The rest of creation is not as blessed as we are and is therefore not under the same obligations and duties that we are. So taking all of this together, I think that we see that being made in God's image, among other things, means that we were created to know God intimately and enjoy fellowship with him, live with him forever, and walk with him. In other words, we were created for God in order that we would worship him. We were created to give ourselves to God. That is his due. 
So again, God gave you the capacity to know, obey, love, and fellowship with him for a reason. Like he didn't do it for kicks, right? He, he had a purpose in mind, his purposes. He did it for himself. And we are therefore under obligation to live out the purpose for which God made us. And God made us that we would give ourselves to him in worship. And again, we know that everything we do is meant to be an act of worship to God. This is what we were made for. And so this is our obligation. We must render it to him. You know, so often people ask, right? This is the great like existential question, especially of my generation. And I'm sure of others as well, right? I mean, Solomon addressed it in Ecclesiastes, but it seems very, very much a uh, 21st century. Everyone's always talking about it. People ask, what am I supposed to do with my life? Why am I here? What is the meaning of it all? I'll tell you. You were created by God to worship him and give yourself to him. That's what you were made for. That's what the word teaches us. You were created, as the Westminster Catech a Shorter Catechism says, you were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were made to know God and give yourself wholly unto him in everything. Romans 11.36 tells us, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you are part of the all things in that verse. Paul says you are made by God for God that you might glorify God. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. That's worship. That's giving yourself to God. Now, as American Christians, we don't like that language. Fear and obey God. We don't like that, but that's what the book says. Fearing God contains reverence and respect. It contains faith, right? Believing what he's revealed about salvation and life and eternity. It contains love for him, right? The fear as a son towards his father. And then obedience is rendering yourself to him out of that fear. Fearing and obeying is worship and giving the self over to God. And the text tells us this is the whole duty of man. That's what's required of you. That's what you're supposed to do with your life. Do this, says Solomon, and you've done what you ought. So then we are to render ourselves to God because this is what we were made for. You were made to give yourself to God. Which is why those who do not are the most miserable in many regards in this life, but especially in eternity. You were made to give yourself to God. And so you are obligated to do so. A third reason that we are to render ourselves to God is that he owns us by right of redemption. And this reason is unique to the Christian. It is unique to those for whom Christ died. It is unique to those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And this reason is precious to us, isn't it? This reason is precious. It is, it is sweet to us. Of all the reasons we could give for why we are to render ourselves to God, this is the sweetest of them all. And thus, for us, is often the most powerful of all reasons. Brothers and sisters, we are to render ourselves to God because we have his name on us. We have his name on us. In verse 16 of our text in Mark, the Lord mentions the inscription on the coin. That's Caesar's name. The coin bore his name, and so it belonged to him. Christian, I hope you recognize you bear the name of God. You know that? 
You were given it in your baptism. You were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19. In the name. God's name is on you. And so you belong to Him. You took God's name upon you. You became His special possession through faith in Jesus Christ of which our baptism is a sign. Baptism is a sign of our union with Christ. Now I want to be clear. I know that we have a couple people who are waiting to be baptized. Not being baptized does not mean that you have not been united to Christ. But baptism is a sign of your union with Christ. A sign that you have his name on you. God's name is on us, brothers and sisters, because he has redeemed us through the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus. His name is on us by virtue of the covenant that he has made with us in Christ. God gave his son for us. God the Son came to earth to live, die, and be raised in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And he did this, why? In order to redeem us. Let me put it another way. He did it in order to buy us back from our sins. To buy us back from the wrath of God that stood against us. And by his blood, he ransomed us. He ransomed us. He saved us. He purchased us. He rescued us from the damnation that we so justly deserve for our sins. And he did this, how? By offering himself up in our place. Let me put it to you this way. He rendered himself to God in our room instead, suffering the wrath of God for our sins as our substitute in order to save us. Consider this, Christ, the only perfect man, the only man who ever fully rendered to God the things that belong to God, and then what does he do? He turns around and then renders himself up to God again for sinners. And in doing so, he bought us. Jesus Christ purchased us so that we might belong to him, that we might belong to God. As the Apostle Paul tells us, you are not your own. Why? For you were bought with a price. He bought you. What does that mean? He owns you. Or as the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways and inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You were ransomed with the blood of the Redeemer. And if you were ransomed and redeemed, then you are owned. You don't belong to you. You don't belong to you. You are owned by God. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God was at work in Christ redeeming us. The Son offered himself to the Father by the Spirit in order to purchase us for God. I'm beating this drum. I know I'm being redundant. This was done so that we would belong to him. God did not do this only to save us, but he did it so that we would be his in a special way that the rest of the creation is not. He did this so that we would render ourselves to him gladly, having been purchased by him. As Psalm 110 tells us, they will offer themselves, your people offer themselves freely in the day of your power. 
that we would render ourselves to the king who gave himself for us. He owns us by right of redemption. We are his slaves now, and it is a sweet slavery. We owe him everything. And this is why the Apostle Paul could write in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Because of the mercies of God. It's plural there. Because of the plurality of mercies that God has given you in Christ. Because of God's redeeming mercy towards you. What are you supposed to do? Offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Please hear me. I'm not trying to sound too harsh here. I'm paraphrasing Paul Washer at this point. If that's not enough to cause you to give yourself up to God, then you're not a Christian. And I'm not just trying to lay on guilt. That is not my intention. That's just the facts of the matter. Paul says, why do you render yourself to God? Why are you? Because of his mercies towards you. If that's not enough, then you're not a Christian. If God has to give you a car, if God has to give you a house, if God has to heal you of cancer, if God has to give you something else other than the mercies of God given to you in Christ in order for you to give yourself to him, then you have not been born again. By the mercies of God, give yourself to him. This is our highest motivation. This is the sweetest motivation. This is the greatest motivation. How could we not give ourselves to him? How could we not? I heard a story of a, of a man who this isn't in my notes, so bear with me. I heard a story of a man who lived an absolute wild life. And all of his friends knew it, and they were likewise heathens, just like he was. And he became a Christian in college, and the very next day was out um, distributing gospel literature. And his friends took him off to the side and said, what are you doing, dude? And he looked at them and said, he died for me. That's all I could say. What are you doing? Do you not realize how foolish, you're, how foolish you look to the rest of us? What are you doing? He died for me. What else am I supposed to do? He gave himself for me. Or consider this thought. God bought what he already owned. What a thought. He bought what he already owned. He owned us by right of creation, but we in our wickedness sold ourselves under sin sold ourselves unto damnation. But God, in grace that is beyond our comprehension, our proper owner bought us back by the blood of Christ. What mercy, what grace that God would do such a thing for sinful creatures. This is astounding stuff. How can we not want to render ourselves to him in everything? He doesn't just own us, he loves us. He doesn't just own us, he loves us. So Christian, think about it this way. You are double owned by God. You're double owned. First, by right of God as creator. And second, by right of God as redeemer. We are to render ourselves to him. Our obligation, if it is possible, is even greater than the world's. We, own to him, we are owned by him twice. 
And so we must surrender ourselves to him who loves us. So we are to pay him what we owe. And what do we owe him? Everything. Everything that we are. That's the point of the text. You are to render yourself wholly unto God. Again, I'll read it again. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's Paul's version of what Jesus said. Render to God the things that are God's. We're to give our whole selves to him. But listen, I, I want to recognize something. That is broad, right? Like, that is so broad that, that I, th- I think, and if any of you are like me, that is so broad that some of us hear that and then say, okay, so everything I am belongs to him, and I guess I just give it to him somehow, right? And like this, and it's, it's so big that it's, it's almost nebulous or like ethereal to us. Like, I, I don't know how to put legs on that. It's so big. Just my whole life is his. Like, do I just do that internally? Yes, you do that internally, right? But like, what does that look like? And so sometimes since that's such a broad commandment, we just kind of sit there and say, I guess that's it then. I, we accept it as fact, and it's a gladly accepted fact, but then we kind of don't know how to put legs on it. So what I want to do now is I want to set a whole bunch of practical things before you. A bunch, 15. Don't worry, I'm not going to give it like two paragraphs on everything. I saw my sister's eyes just get really big. That's not what's going to happen. But there are 15 things that I just want to list. And this is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. But I just want to put some things before you that will help you put legs on this. What does it look like to render yourself to God? Well, first, you are to render your affections to him. He's to be your highest love, your greatest desire. He is to have your awe, your love, your fear, your respect. Right? You, you are to, to want his smile to shine upon you more than men's. He is to have your highest affection. Your greatest aspiration is to know him. Let me put it this way. He is to be your obsession. Be obsessed with him. Second, I'll stop numbering them. You are to render your obedience to him. What he says, you are to recognize as your privilege to obey. And this is a catch-all, I know. You render your obedience. You are to render your repentance to him. Daily, you are to agree with God about your sin as he reveals it to you and you forsake it. Turning your back on it and returning to him, even your secret sins. I don't know if I'm talking to anyone right now. I'm not trying to pretend to be charismatic. I don't believe in that stuff. I don't know if I'm talking to anyone right now. But even your secret sins that only you and him know about, turn from them. You owe it to him. You owe it to him. Fourth, you are to render your faith to him. All of your trust is to be committed to him. Blessed is the one whose trust is the Lord. You're to render your trust to him, believing his promises that he is committed to you in Christ. Trusting that he knows what he's doing in your life. Render your faith to him. You are to render your, fifthly, your worship to him. Your daily worship to him and your weekly corporate worship, what we're doing now, you are to make it your priority to get alone with him each day and praise him and to weekly gather with the saints to formally worship him. And nothing but providential hindrances are to keep you from that. You owe him your worship. 
Six, you are to render your time to him. Structuring your life around his priorities to you. Please, we're bad at this, aren't we? Render your time to him. Not wasting your life on trivial things that don't matter. I'm just as guilty of this as the rest of you. On your deathbed, you will not be saying, I wish I would have spent an extra 30 minutes on Facebook. That's not what you're going to be thinking. We're to give our time to him. Our time belongs to him. Our priorities belong to him. Seventh, you are to render your money and your possessions to him. Taking all that he has given to you, and as he calls and as he makes things clear to you, putting all of your resources at his disposal to do good as he would call you to do it. And eighth thing, you are to render your skills, your abilities, your service to him. What do I mean? Whatever you're good at, however God has blessed you. And some of you will say, oh, I'm not good at anything. Don't talk bad about God like that. He's given you something. It may not be to stand behind a pulpit and speak, but he's given you something that you might serve him. However he's blessed you, you put it into his service and for the service of his people and his kingdom. In other words, leverage your talents for his glory. You owe it to him. The ninth thing, you are to render your marriage to him. That is, you are to render how you behave in your marriage to him. Listening to his word, you conduct yourself as is appropriate towards your spouse, even when you don't want to. You render your marriage to him. Tenth, you render your child rearing to him. You are to raise your children according to his word, using discipline and instruction. Listen, the gentle parenting stuff is unbiblical. Have you heard people, I don't spank my kids. Well, you're sinning. Congratulations. The Bible tells you to do it. You are to, to discipline, and not, I'm, not, I'm not telling you to beat your children. I'm not telling you to be mean to them. You're to discipline and instruct them, you're, verbally and corporally. You're to teach your kids. You please God and not men with how you deal with your children. You give your child rearing to him. Eleventh, you are to render your attitude and your emotions to him. Yeah, a lot of people say, I can't help it. I can't help it. I'm just... I, I worry. I'm a worrier. My mom was a worrier. My... No, you can't help it. God commands your attitudes. He commands your emotions. Or this, well, I'm not going to be fake. I'm mad at him. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Render your attitude and your emotions to God. He commands them. So you submit your feelings to his word. And hear me, this is big. I'm working through this myself. You are governed according to Scripture and not your natural impulses. You render your emotions to him. Twelve, you are to render your speech to him. How you speak, when you speak, what you say, how you say it. Not shying away from truth, but doing so with gentleness and firmness to glorify him. The thirteenth thing, you are to render your work ethic to him. You are to conduct yourself daily in your job as if working for the Lord Jesus, as the apostle tells us. You render your work ethic to him. Fourteenth, you, you, remember, or you render your thoughts to him. Bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Dwelling on those things that please him. And denying yourself meditation upon things that he hates. Fifteenth, you render your body to him. As Paul tells us in Romans 12. And that's broad. 
gospel. I end with that because Paul is saying, whatever you do, whatever it is that you do, all of your actions belong to him. Now, there are many more things that could be said. Renewing ourselves to God touches everything. Listen, there's not one corner, not one compartment of your life that God does not reach out and touch and say, it's mine. Everything. It's all his. There's nothing beyond his ownership, and so there is nothing that we are to hold back. There's nothing that we are to hold back. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, give yourself to God because he made you. Give yourself to God because his image is on you. Give yourself to God because his name is on you. Render to God what belongs to God. Is he not worthy? As your maker? As your redeemer? Of course he is. He is worthy. So then, give yourself to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word that that gives us so many reasons why we should obey you. You don't have to give us any reasons. You could just say, do it because I said so, and that would be sufficient for us. But God, you give us so many reasons. Chief among them, God, that the sweetest one to us is Christ who gave himself for us. We thank you for him. We thank you for the reasons that you give us for our obedience and your word. And God, I ask now that by your spirit, you would help us to walk in obedience to this command. And God, we will fail, but we know that your grace is greater than all our sin. So God, as we fail and we will each day renew our repentance within us, grant grace, grant grace that we would continue to repent, continue to believe, and continue to pursue giving ourselves to you in everything. Have mercy on us, God. Help us to make our lives a living sacrifice to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.